Hello and welcome to the Flint Catholic Podcast. My name is Father Tony Smila. And I'm Michael Hasso. And today we're here with special guest Tim Goodrich, our first returning guest. We're only a few episodes in and we've already got a returning guest, so I think we're doing something right, right? Maybe. Hopefully so, yes. Hopefully so, yes. Today we're looking at the document Fratelli Tutti, and um, I'm going to break a rule of podcasting and radio and that you never reveal the date, the time that you're actually recording, but I'm going to do that today uh, just to give you a little context and, and where we're coming from. So it is uh, 3.53 in the afternoon on Monday, October 5th. So the encyclical released about a day and a half ago, so we've kind of powered through it, we've read it, and probably more like skimmed a lot of it, um, but we wanted to bring our thoughts to you, and we wanted to really bring what we think is, is a lot of the core of the encyclical here. Pope Francis hasn't released that many encyclicals, so for him to release an encyclical is a, is a big deal. And so what we want to do is, I think, just start with um, some thousand-foot views, just the, the big overall thoughts. Uh, what were you thinking when you read it? What are the big-picture ideas? And, and I'll start. Um, I think that... Uh, this is obviously something Pope Francis wrote. It's so different than his predecessors. It's so different than John Paul II. It's so different than Benedict XVI in that it's, it's not a theological treatise. He's not really diving into a lot of philosophy. He's not diving into a lot of theological doctrine and dogma. But he's really speaking, and, and really what he's doing is he's preaching. This is, this is an extended homily, I, that the way I read it, and that he's really preaching to us. And, and, and I really appreciate that about his style, because I, I hope I preach like that too, right? That I'm I'm not really getting into the the muck and mire of, of philosophy as much as I love philosophy. Uh, I I want to be able to to give that in in pieces that that are helpful, and so he he does the same thing here where he's really talking on a real human level here. He's talking about things that we think about. He talks about politics and he talks about world leaders, world events, and things that we're thinking about in our daily lives all the time. And he's not um, it's not so much just drenched in theology, but it's the theology mixed in with the world. And that's one of the my big takeaways from this is, wow, he's really talking about issues that, that perhaps don't um, uh, directly have to do with theology, but of course are influenced by theology because everything we do is influenced by our worldview, influenced by um, the revelation of Jesus Christ in the world. And so he keeps bringing back Jesus Christ into it. Uh, but talking about topics that that we really haven't seen too often in encyclicals like that. Yeah, yeah, I would totally agree with that. I think um, that was a really a really striking thing to me as well as like it did it the encyclical really came off like something that Pope Francis was preaching. Um, and the reason I say that is to what you were saying, Father. It's like when you when someone preaches the purpose of that is to bring about conversion. And so it's not necessarily to, you know, expound on theological doctrine or get into the deep questions of philosophy, but it's to bring about conversion. And so um, that kind of gives us a good framework to start with for like how um, Pope Francis is approaching this. That's sort of his tone. Well, I guess my thought would be in sort of going over this would be that I think there's, I, I can't, I probably, I can't speak as much to what you guys are saying because I, I, um, maybe with this, not as much other encyclicals or whatever to, to compare it to. Sure. Um, but I, I think much of what he says is 
good and in many ways exhibits the love and humility of Jesus or as he seems to be seeking to emulate uh, St. Francis of Assisi, that spirit. So for me, much of it strike, strikes me as good stuff. Everything that he says, or most of what he says, I would say is good stuff. It, I, I might have some concerns about what he what he doesn't say, or not, not even so much in this encyclical, but just in terms of his entire uh, papacy, but... I guess that's my just sure. initial thoughts. Sure, yeah, and that's, I don't know, it's it's tough to be able to, to speak about everything, I think, in this, but I think you're right. There are some some concerns in this. Um, there are some things I wish he would say better. Um, I think a lot of um, the way he writes comes from his, his Latin American heritage, and and certainly it's it's not as, as straight things. So I'm, you know, even just, we were talking about this beforehand, um, there's not a table of contents. You know, I'd love to be able to see a table of contents, see, okay, where is he going? What direction is he moving? He just kind of goes from this, and then he talks about this over here, and then he talks about this over here, and and we're like, okay. Um, doesn't seem to be, you know, there's the the one feeling he's got throughout the entire thing is is, is fraternity and this idea of, of us being brothers and sisters in the world, and that's the idea that connects all of it, but it's certainly not as linear as I'd like it to be. Yeah, you know, that's something that I never thought about before, but I think you hit it right on the money. It's so... Um, I guess in line with a certain, a sort of Latin American heritage. Yeah. You know, he's, he's pretty, um, you know, free flowing in his form. There's definitely organization to it, but it's not, um, definitely not in the same style as like John Paul II or Benedict XVI, obviously. But I will say the other striking thing to me as well, as I was reading this, was that it seemed in a particular way like he was, um, really a spiritual father of the church speaking to what the world is struggling with in the midst of COVID-19. Yes. Like to me, it, to me, it really came off like he was, um, like he was trying to offer sort of fatherly wisdom of how, how we as the church should navigate the, you know, the, I guess the turmoil that's, you know, all around us today. Yeah. I totally agree with that. I think, you know, it was. I was actually surprised when when he just names it right off the right off the bat. Like we're dealing with a brand new world right now. Like things have changed. The structures that we thought we could rely on, we've learned now that we can't really rely on them. So what can we rely on? I thought it was one of the the parts where I just kind of jumped up and went yes. Was was when he really talked about how we treat um, those with disabilities and the elderly, and especially how we've treated the elderly in this time. And we've seen them as something. Well, they're a burden, and so we don't really have to care for them. And, yeah. and how how just ugly that is. And he really calls that out and says, you know, our healthcare systems have really just allowed them to be put in the in the corners off away, you know, away from the societies. We've marginalized them and and treated them um, terribly in all this. And it really came forth to the forefront in the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, so I, I really especially appreciated that that from him. Yeah. Yeah. In a, in a way, I would say also like there, are especially those parts that you're talking about of where he talks about the elderly um, and things like that. He's very much continuing in the vein of like John Paul II with Humana Vitae, um, the gospel of life, you know, just, I guess, reiterating that those same things that John Paul II was highlighting back in the 80s, that they're, if anything, coming to the forefront even more today, um, that it's still a concern for us. 
and that we need to be, as a church, aware of these things and responding to them. How do we respond to these um, challenges with the gospel? Um, and I think he does a very good job of that. There's a couple of things at the beginning that I'd like to talk about. Um, and specifically, he starts right at the beginning talking about like um, not only dialogue, but division, the division that we see in the world. Um, and one of those things, there's a quote like right in paragraph four, he says, indeed, only the man who approaches others not to draw them to his own life, but to help them become even more fully themselves can truly be called a father. Mm. Um, and that that really struck me personally, um, because I think um, not only in my own journey of, you know, coming to know Jesus and then eventually wanting to tell others about him, it can get so easy to to get caught up in um, in maybe like an evangelization through argumentation. Right. Yes. Um, and I think he he really kind of is trying to steer the church away from that. And not that we don't have truth. I mean, he pretty clearly like lays that out. We do have truth, but that's just not not what wins hearts. Yeah. That whole section on th- th- towards the end too, he talks about dialogue. He has a big section on dialogue, and I thought that was really well written. And it sounds like if if I can get one more ten thousand foot view out there, it it almost sounds like Pope Francis is is writing out of a place of severe frustration. You can almost see it in the way he talks about these things. He's frustrated with people in the world just treating each other like dirt. He's frustrated with the way that governments operate. He's frustrated with politics. He's frustrated with the things that get in the way with us loving each other. And and you really see that coming out like just stop doing these things. Stop, you know, creating division. Stop creating all of this turmoil and and all of this this uh, this desire to want to to combat and fight. Instead, dialogue with love. Instead of reach out and and that really stuck out to me as something that he, he's frustrated with the way the world is today. And, and how can we not be? I mean, all of us look out there and we, we're all frustrated. We're all looking out like, gosh, does it have to be this way? Do we have to treat each other this way? He calls out human trafficking. He calls out abortion. He calls out uh, the way we treat other people and the elderly and the disabled. And, and it's just a cry from his heart like, we need to stop treating them this way. Can we please not do that? I think it's something a lot of us can relate to. Yeah, yeah. And he really seems to like kind of tease that that theme out throughout the whole encyclical where he um, talks about not only the division, um, you know, among religious groups, but the division due to politics or the really the division among countries. I mean, you right. can, I think we're really seeing that in a big way since COVID-19. Absolutely. What really surprised me about it is he was actually unafraid to call it out by name too. And he mentions the European Union. He mentions United Nations. He really is calling out these people by name and saying, hey, we need to like do something about this. We need to really get out there and and not be caught up in, in just politics as usual because politics as usual doesn't get anything done. Politics as usual is getting us the same results as we've always had. Maybe this would be a good time then to talk about the the gospel of the Good Samaritan. Yeah. So I don't know if Pope Francis meant to do this, but today's gospel was the gospel of the Good Samaritan. And, yeah. and that was a, a real 
primary feature in this encyclical. Chapter two is really his exegetical look at the Good Samaritan. And it certainly pulls together a lot of the pieces that he's talking about here. He sees the priest and the Levite, and, and I'm speaking as a priest, right? The priest and the <laughs> Levite walk on the other side. They, don't, they not only ignore the man who is half beaten to death, but they choose the opposite side to walk. And and it's it's certainly clear that that Pope Francis wants to pull out like this idea of tribalism, this idea of of the law getting in the way of doing what is right, and 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 I, I think he's really I don't think he uses the word tribalism, but that's the word that kept coming to my mind over and over again that we've sunk into these tribes, and even within our own Catholic tribe, we can we can fall into this and in saying, oh, you know, we're, uh, my battle is going to be in the tribe of 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 traditional things, or my mind's going to be in the charismatic things, and we can even have that infighting within our own within our our own catholic faith and and he calls that out and says "Mm -mm, don't do that yeah yeah i'd not to put you on the spot tim but i'd love to hear your perspective on that as somebody who's um a convert to the faith um you know i'm sure in big and small ways you see division everywhere but i guess what's your perspective as somebody that's relatively new to the church both from your experience as a Protestant, but also um, coming into the Catholic Church, like you know, is there is there anything like new or or particular to the Catholic Church um, in terms of in terms of this sort of um, you know division or or as Father Tony said, tribalism? Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, clearly the Church has you, you know areas. Be- like group against group or, you know, the ones that you mentioned, traditional, charismatic, more, you know, liberal, whatever. So it's, it seems to me the biggest, the biggest divide I've seen or the, like the most fundamental is in regard to like traditional versus the liberal. Those, those seems like big ones, but that being said, those represent some pretty fundamental areas of worldview. So it's, I guess it's natural to, that that kind of stuff would happen. To me, again, the, to restate what I said at the beginning, it seems to me that that there is th- this is a fundamental a fundament, fundamental way of looking at all of life, whether that's in the world of politics, the way one country treats another country, the way that we treat our own personal quote unquote enemies or whatever. This idea of um, viewing the the, the way that the Good Samaritan, the way that the Samaritan treated the person that was um, that was down in their luck, that was beaten up and so forth, uh, no matter what our viewpoint on anything, I think that's, to me, it makes sense that we always have to view the other, no matter how dime, even if they're, we, we just absolutely believe they're just totally and entirely wrong on everything that they stand for, just as Jesus did, we have to be, it, it, we have to be willing to um, to lay down our entire selves for our enemy, as it were. I think what's what I love about the passage too is that um, the Pope doesn't just leave the passage and just exegete it, but he shows like this is something that throughout the entire Old Testament was was called for. This is nothing new that Jesus is calling for. So he quotes from Exodus, you shall not wrong or oppress a stranger for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And even that one right there, that powerful image of 
you were once a stranger, and so you cannot wrong or oppress the stranger in your own land. You were there at one point. I mean, we've all, I think most of, most of us have been to the point where we've been that, that man half dead on the, on the road. We've, we've hit our, some sort of rock bottom, and we've had to come and figure out, okay, where, where do I go from here? And then we've all been, I think, all of the characters in that, in that parable. But it even starts with Cain and Abel. And, and Abel, or Cain asked the question, am I my brother's keeper? Such a, a profound question that he asks right in that moment. And, and God doesn't just outright answer that, right? He says, am I my brother's keeper? That's a question we all um, have within our own hearts. Am I my brother's keeper? What's the answer to that? By the very question he asks, God leaves no room for an appeal to determinism or fatalism as a justification for our own indifference. Instead, he encourages us to create a different culture in which we resolve our conflicts and care for one another. That's a, just a great way of, of wrapping that up in which we, we use dialogue to work through the different things. So we're not you know, going to engage in battle in those things, but we need to really engage in that, in that dialogue to create that different culture which resolves our conflicts and care for one another. The resolution of those conflicts is the, is the important thing there. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired <laughs> of fighting silly battles. I'm tired of fighting things that, in the end, don't really matter. I'd rather just get to work on the things that do matter. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, you know, the sooner that we can start partnering with people to bring about the good, the better. Um, because it's so easy to find division today. Um, but I think Pope Francis is really leading us towards a place of well, I mean, fraternity, quite frankly. So I really love this passage, his sort of meditation on the, on the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, you know, it just, it really comes off like he's doing a sort of, like he's basically just sort of walking us through his meditation. Um, and personally, that's, of his writings, that's usually like one of my favorite parts. He He does such a good job of, um, I guess, walking us through his encounter with God in the scriptures. So for, can I, can I back out just a little bit to go, go to a, go for a higher view, or at least express some of the, what, what causes me to have a little bit of trouble as I think through the, the big idea of this encyclical, which is, so what, one of the things that I think through off, not just in relation to the Pope, but certainly maybe particularly in relation to the Pope and the Catholic Church, the role, what, the role of the church in preaching the gospel as the, the sort of once for all delivered um, message, to the prophetic message to the world about Jesus as opposed to her role as um, sort of political diplomat, if mm -hmm. you will. Sure. And balancing those roles. Because, um, and I, I'm not in entirely sure I have a, a well-worked-out answer of how that's supposed to work out. And it, se it seems to me that the church should be doing good bits of both. Obviously, the Catholic Church is in a position that no other... Church, very few other church groups are in a position that the, the level of um, 
respect and admiration and influence that um, that the Pope has in relation to the rest of the world, to be able to bring about peaceful resolutions to conflicts and all that kind of stuff. Um, for me, there, if you, it seems to me that if if one one of those is pursued to the essential neglect of the other, there's probably something amiss there. And so I think for me, when I see, like, for example, we see the, one of the first messages of the first Pope, we see, we see Peter, some of the things, some of the messages that he gave, they seem extremely prophetic and extremely particular about focusing on this person, the proclamation of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And um, it seems to me that for, in relation, as I look at the, 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 the overall tenor of the kinds of things that Pope Francis talks about, it seems to me it's much more about the, the as great as, as it is, this idea of the brotherhood of man, and we're all in this together, no matter what religion we are or what country we're from, if we were not fundamentally hearing a clear proclamation of the person of Jesus Christ, that in some sense is going to bring offense. There's something about that to me that it, I have kind of a question mark about. Does that does that make any sense to yeah. either of you guys? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And historically, I'd say that the church has struggled long with this issue. You know, you've had times in in church history where the politics and and the faith were very inseparable from each other in that in that in fact the the Vatican city states were their own country and, and with their own army and just very enmeshed in the political affairs of of the world at the time and and so we'd say that probably went too far in that direction certainly and then um and then if you totally separate yourselves completely off from that then you've got this this thing that that turns almost into gnosticism where you're no longer than like living within the real world, but you're you're just kind of disavowing everything, which is not where we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be Catholics in the world. We we're living in the world, but not of the world. Mm-hmm. So there's there's I, I feel like you're right. There is a, a very fine line to be to be um, to be walked here, and and perhaps does the, does the Pope um, fall one side a little bit more than the other? I think that's true, and certainly more than his predecessors. He's, he falls on the side of talking more about the politics, more about, about the worldly things, and, and less about the proclamation of Jesus himself, but it's, it's not that it's absent. I would mm-hmm. say it's certainly not absent. Maybe see who is Pope Francis writing this letter to. Yeah. Audience is important. That's what I was just going to say. This I think this encyclical probably more than any that I've read um, it comes off to me as sort of like addressing the whole world and not just the church. I think he's really more or less speaking to to whoever will listen. Yeah. Um, which, you know, to be frank, was kind of Jesus's perspective, too. Absolutely. Like he wasn't just speaking to Jews. He was speaking to whoever has ears to hear. Right. Um, so I would add that. But in the same sense, too, I would also say like he's modeling what good evangelization looks like because um oftentimes it's like i i've spent a lot of time street evangelizing and oftentimes when i'm talking to a person on the street i don't have a whole lot of context of where they're coming from and so i have to make a quick assessment of where they're coming from and you know adapt to that sort of meet them where they're at so if they're an atheist 
you know, I might try and pray with them, but it's going to look a lot different than, you know, maybe meeting somebody who comes up to me and, you know, is knocking on my door to tell me about Jesus or, or something like that. Um, so I think in one sense, he's sort of adapting. I have another section I'd like to talk about. Um, chapter six, dialogue and friendship in society. Now, this is where he kind of jumps on on the same uh, soapboxes I like to jump on often, so I definitely want to, to bring this up. And uh, this is where he really starts talking about dialogue in depth and really starts getting to, to what he actually means with dialogue. He says in paragraph 200, dialogue is often confused with something quite different, the feverish exchange of opinions on social networks, frequently based on media information that is not always reliable. These exchanges are merely parallel monologues. And I love that phrase, parallel monologues, basically saying everyone's in their own <laughs> echo chamber and they're just saying a bunch of stuff that comes out of their mouth. But are we actually promoting a dialogue that, that entails listening it entails actually, can we form our, our, our opinions? Can we form our intellect off of people that we disagree with, off people that, that we don't agree with, that we listen, willing to listen to them? And then, of course, why I jumped in on that is because you mentioned social networks, and I think um, social media is uh, awful, and you all should get off of it, except for <laughs> podcasts. Um, get off Facebook, get off Instagram, get off of the things that don't actually draw you towards God because really you just hear a lot of echo chambery stuff and nobody wants that. Nobody needs that. It's not helpful. Yeah. And, uh, Pope Francis also makes note. I don't think it's in the same section, but more at the end of the encyclical, I believe he says something to the effect of like, you know, without friendship, without true dialogue, that we can't really come to know the truth. We can't, uh, like we really don't even have a basis for knowledge because we're so clouded by our judgments or by preconceived notions. That's correct. Yeah. And in fact, he calls it out by name and I love this paragraph too. So it's paragraph 206. It says the solution is not relativism. Mm, right there. Solution is not relativism. Under the guise of tolerance, relativism ultimately leaves the interpretation of moral values to those in power to be defined as they see fit. In the absence of objective truths or sound principles other than the satisfaction of our own desires and immediate needs, we should not think that political efforts or the force of law will be sufficient when the culture itself is corrupt and the objective truth and universality, universally valid principles are no longer upheld. Then laws can only be seen as arbitrary impositions or obstacles to be avoided. I think that's such a wonderfully well put together paragraph where... Solution is not relativism, and if we don't have a moral society, then it's just going to go to that. If we can't base our morals on on objective truth, and of course that objective truth is Jesus Christ, then it's going to turn to corruption, and it's going to turn to those in power will seek the power and grab it. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing in our country today, is those in power just trying to grab and seek power, allowing that corruption to continue. What? I, first of all, I would say absolutely. Like on uh, the on the page, I think it's beautiful because I absolutely believe, I absolutely agree with basically every word there. It just it seems to me like to to read that in in the context of many of the moves that Pope Francis has made within the church, it seems to me anyways that he's 
he's saying the right thing and he's not going along with it. So like on issues of, again, some of the most fundamental moral teaching over the history of the church, in my mind, he's caused extreme confusion and lack of clarity on that, which to me plays right into the hand of moral relativism. So on the again, on the page, I would say absolutely hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. Uh, and then, but then just have questions in regard to his own actions. So, so let me, let me challenge, <laughs> let me challenge you on that point a little bit. Okay. Let me, let me see if maybe I can and piece it together to where maybe it might make, make sense. Okay. What if it is the case? And I don't know if this is the case. I don't know Pope Francis personally. What if it's the case that with a lot of those statements that he makes or that the ambiguity, which I personally don't, I'm not a big fan of the ambiguity either. Um, what if he's trying to create that spirit of dialogue that he's really talking about here. He's trying to get the dialogue moving, getting people talking about these things and allowing that dialogue to take place. And to do that, he's kind of, he throws the, the statements out there or he's, you know, he leaves things ambiguous so that, and I, I think sometimes he's feels uncomfortable being the one to say, this is, this is the way that the truth has been revealed to the church. And so he'd rather, Hey, let's come to this, together let's come to this in dialogue because that seems to be the way he operates a lot is through dialogue he wants to dialogue he wants to talk things out and he wants wants it to happen in that way and so i think oftentimes he may be trying to do that maybe maybe not i could be reading that totally wrong but i would argue that he he's picking and choosing the things that he wants to be harsh about and so again at least for me it causes a big question mark if i might end on a slightly positive <laughs> <laughs> the thing for me when Pope Francis first became when, was when he was first elected as Pope the thing that I loved about him so much was the very fact that he was that he kind of gave off a, the spirit of a Saint Francis or this this his demeanor the fact that he was not as much pulled into the trappings of the office or the, the, the sort of exterior show of um, ceremony and reverence, but more just kind of this humble, very almost plain style of speaking and acting and helping the poor. So to me, that was a huge breath of fresh air. And I don't, I, I, I do think there's, there's much to be commended in that whole um, that whole pursuit, and I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't even know who you would, from a pope, per, from a papal perspective, who you would go to to say, oh, this pope, was there ever in the last however many centuries a pope like that? I don't know, yeah. but I think that's something that I would highly commend, yeah, yeah, which comes across in this encyclical. Yeah, he's definitely a unique pope. Um, but I do think it is important to acknowledge, like you were saying, Tim, that, you know, he is, even though he is Pope, he is still a human. And so as such, he does have flaws and, and is by no means perfect. I mean, I would, I would agree with a lot of what you're saying in that, like, you know, his lack of clarity doesn't help his case as Pope. Like we, we do need, we do need clarity. Um, so that is important, but you know, at the same time, acknowledging, um, acknowledging the good that's coming, but also not being afraid to, um, to say, no, we do need more clarity there. Correct. Yep. No doubt. No doubt about that.
at like I don't know if you guys have heard this before, but a, I've heard a number of times people claim that Pope Francis is a communist, a socialist, that he's anti-capitalist. Yes. Yeah. And it really bothers me because it's pretty much always taken out of context. Um, you know, I I personally haven't seen like a legitimate claim so th to that. This would be good because I tend to fall into that and think that I think he is anti-capitalist. I think he okay. I think he doesn't like the United States. <laughs> and well, I, I I might agree with that. <laughs> that last part, well, <laughs> perhaps he doesn't like the United States with its current president. Well. I think that's that's not an unpopular opinion. Yeah. Yeah, he might actually be with the majority there. No doubt. But what yeah, jump what I was going to say, though, um, I can't find the passage right now, but he does comment briefly on the 2008 financial crisis and everything that's happened since then. And he's basically said how, um, I guess... Like the the sort of um, centers of power, I guess you might say, haven't really changed. Basically, like all the corruption that sort of came to the surface as a result of that hasn't really changed. He's saying that's still there. Um, and I would even just give one small example of this. I recently um, heard this from somebody, and it was about you know the bailout of all these banks and stuff like that. And I heard that, I believe the company was AIG, um, that a number of their, you know, senior leadership, even though they were bailed out, they got like million dollar bonuses um, because of how different things were structured and whatever. And that's just one of several examples that I could make. But I think in terms of like what's happening sort of behind the scenes, whether it's politically or financially in the business world, I actually think he's right on the pulse of this. I think that's I think that's a really spot on assessment. Um, and from my perspective, um, I would say that's not at all like anti-capitalist. I think yeah. I think he's actually like more in tune than probably a lot of investors or financial experts. I I think that's that's fair. He certainly is against. Capitalism when it leads to greed. Capitalism in the ways that if we live in an unregulated, unmoral society, then it certainly always will then lead to corruption. It will always lead to uh, injustice in those ways. So he certainly is seeing all the ways that, that the capitalism leads to corruption, leads to injustice, and wants to call that out by name. This is another area where I st struggled at, at sort of a 10,000-foot view to... to grapple with how to think through things because it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at the current state of the United States and realize there's a lot of people with lots of money and have people that have been very greedy, institutions, individuals, etc. And um, but then the issue is when I went at least for me when I try to think like through like okay what what other system would sort of cure that and it's hard for me to think for all the flaws of our current system, it's hard for me to think of how it would be better or has been better in other economic systems. In other words, I'm not entirely convinced that the economic model that you have is the thing that actually cures greed. Does that, in other words, like oh, certainly. So, socialists, communists, whatever, whatever other system you want to point to, it always seems to have a way of 
rearing its ugly head. So that's why it, it, for all the flaws of capitalism, which are many, I have a hard time trying to or coming across as saying, okay, uh, ca- capitalism just fundamentally is bad. And so that's kind of where I, with yeah. the critiques of capitalism, sometimes for for all that they have right, I'm not entirely sure at the end of the day. Okay, what's your alternative that's going to fix Correct. that? Correct. And and maybe he's not. You know, maybe he does go overboard in in the critique of of capitalism to the point where it makes us think, well, what's better? You know, I think it seems like he's just saying we got to make sure the greed gets gets taken out of this. We got to make sure that um, all the people who create the injustices need to be called out and need to be there needs to be regulation in that way and and i would certainly agree with that just unfettered capitalism is not always a good thing and and oftentimes leads to to that stuff so how can we make sure as a people we don't allow the corruption then to continue we call them out and we 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 don't allow that to happen in our own midst sure and that's that's perhaps where um um i would like to hope that that's the way he would like to go Mm mm-hmm as yeah. to whether whether he has um, base level views about capitalism that are that are against capitalism or not, um, maybe beyond um, all of at least beyond my scope of what I know, and it's certainly beyond the scope of what he's able to do. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I would agree with all that. I think he, like, he would probably be considered more, um, you know, more left on the economic spectrum than what we might be comfortable with here in the United States. But, you know, I mean, that's also like his background, like he's bringing who he is as a person, his, his cultural heritage and, and all of these things. So I think that naturally puts him probably a little bit more, um, you know, towards that side of things economically than, than what we might be accustomed to in the United States. But I, I, I agree. I think like, you know, some of those uh, some of those phrases that he throws out so often, like unfettered capitalism and stuff like that. Right. I feel like like the first time I heard that just like as an American, <laughs> I was yes. just like it just kind of like was like, oh, like, you know, that's you know, it seems like um, like maybe leading towards something that's like totally, you know, un-American in one sense. But I would say like if you really read into what he's saying and what he's what he's describing, um, I would say it's it's really not about economics. It's really about, I guess, like you guys said, the the greed issue and how how to regardless of, you know, your economic system, um, how to live that with holiness it's it really is this something that has to be you know wrestled through absolutely as, as a j- just again even on a personal level as a christian where do you draw the line between lo- okay loving your enemy and forgiving your enemies and um say dealing with let's say being treated unjustly where you work or let's say in some issue in your neighborhood or something like that do do you just trying to find the line of okay do you just entirely lay down and give everything that you have if somebody comes in for for example if we were to take the words of sometimes the words of jesus entirely literally one might get the idea that it's wrong to ever stand up 
for something that actually belongs to you. Ooh. You know what I'm saying? Yes. So this this actually leads to a, a, a paragraph that he, he addresses this directly. Mm-hmm. He addresses this line directly, which I think is really important that he puts this in here. Um, he says, so he's talking about um, legitimate conflict and forgiveness. So this is paragraph 241. He says, on the contrary, true love for an oppressor means seeking ways to make him cease his oppression. It means stripping him of a power that he does not know how to use, that diminishes his own humanity and that of others. Forgiveness does not entail allowing oppressors to keep trampling on their own dignity and that of others, or letting criminals continue their wrongdoing. And then later on he says, authentic reconciliation does not flee from conflict, but is achieved in conflict, resolving it through dialogue and open, honest, and patient negotiation. Now that's something I don't think I've heard from Pope Francis yet. That that shocked me when I read that. I went, wow, that doesn't sound like him at all. It's very different, but it's, it fits in everything that he's talking about. And I'm so glad he said that, that, yeah, when, when there is an oppressor, when there is something going on out there, we're not meant to just lay down and take it. Right. But we, we should make him cease his oppression because it strips him of his power he does not know how to use. I thought that's such a fascinating insight. He's been given power and he doesn't know how to use it for the common good. That diminishes his own humanity and that of others. That's, that's powerful. And that's such a great way to think about that. Um, that really, uh, I was so glad to, to see that from, from Pope Francis. Well, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So it looks like we're running out of time. We've already been talking for for quite a while now. Um, So what we're going to do then is we're just, Mike and I, we're going to hit some um, honorable mentions, and then we'll close it out for the day. So, Michael, go ahead. Yeah, so these are just a couple of things that we personally individually wanted to rant about, but they didn't quite make it into the the full podcast. So um, for me, one of the big things that Pope Francis hits on, and this isn't new, but he he does a great job of pointing it out, is manipulation, specifically manipulation of the media. He talks about this in paragraph 159. Um, He talks about popular leaders who identify significant trends in society that do exist, but they use this to sort of manipulate the culture, manipulate some of these trends that they see in place, and ultimately manipulate society. Um, And Again, this is not at all a new thing. I mean, this has been happening. This is actually one of the key identifiers of secularism in our world. And this has been happening as far back as the Reformation, or not the Reformation, as far back as the um, Enlightenment, mm-hmm. um, if not further. Um, and along with that, this is also at the beginning, but it, it relates to this piece as well. He talks about deconstructionism. And he defines it. He says... Um, deconstructionism, whereby human freedom claims to create everything starting from zero, is making today is making headway in today's culture. Um, so basically, it's just this idea that we we need to throw out all of the old stuff that occurred before us, before our time. That's old. We can't trust that anymore. So we need to start from ground zero. And he has this great quote, and I'll just end with this. He says. This is paragraph 13. He says, If someone tells young people to ignore their history, to reject the experiences of their elders, to look down on the past, and to look forward to a future that he himself holds holds out, does it then become easy to draw them along so that they only do what he tells them? 
He needs the young to be shallow, uprooted, and distrustful, so that they can trust only in his promises and act according to his plans. That is how various ideologies operate. They destroy or act they destroy or deconstruct all differences so that they reign unopposed. To do so, however, they need young people who have no use for history, who spurn the spiritual and human riches inherited from past generations, and are ignorant of everything that came before them. Dang. Yeah. So don't be an ignorant youth. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the message, too, is, like, don't don't um, spurn history, That's as it. he says. That's the real thing. Yeah. yeah. History matters. It's important. We stand on the shoulders of giants, and we should be proud of that. That's a great thing. It says nothing about us. It's everything about what came before us, and we can go even further from that. Yep. Good. I have a couple of honorable mentions as well. Um, the first one is uh, digital communication. So he's certainly talking about the COVID-19 pan- pandemic and how it's changed our lives and, and how digital communication is is so prevalent in our societies now. We Zoom call everything now. We're doing a lot of communication through technology, but it does not replace the real human contact. And that's something that's a real desire of our heart, right? Something that we can start to lack then. We can replace the real human contact with these digital mediums and we have to be careful not to do that. Be careful to, to make sure that what real what brings real fraternity is real human contact, real being face to face with somebody, having that real dialogue and conversation with them. That's an important thing. So he says, be careful during this time. Let's make sure we don't replace the human contact with the digital communication as great as it is because it's great. It furthers the thing. This podcast is um, doable because of digital communication and the technology that's available to us now that shouldn't replace those human things. I think my last uh, honorable mention is, is something that I really wish we would have had the chance to really dive into, because I think you're going to hear an awful lot about this. And this is the Pope's take on war and the death penalty. It's in the last chapter. And he talks about both of those things and how we should do everything we can to avoid war. But I think especially when he's talking about the death penalty, this is where um, this is where we can really get some, some, some pushback. I think you're going to see a lot of people pushing back against it. Um, but I typically tend to agree with the Pope on this one, where he says, in our day and age, it, we shouldn't need the death penalty to keep people safe, right? The original intent of the death penalty was to to make sure that the, the dangers to society are no longer a danger to society. And he, he goes even a little bit further, and, and is really kind of challenging my view on this, but I think it's true, where we even have to look at the conditions of prisons, because what we don't want to do is demean the person. Even though the person may have done the most horrific crime and, and certainly may have forfeited um, a lot of his freedom and, and perhaps even his right to live, we can't forfeit, he can't forfeit his human dignity. And that we have to be very careful of. We make sure whenever the justice system works, that it's the justice system and not the vengeance system. You know, we, we really need to make sure that we're doing this out of a sense of love and justice for, for other people and not out of a sense of vengeance. And so is the death penalty necessary in our day and age anymore? And Pope Francis really is going out there and saying, no, I don't think it is. And I think in, you know, 99% of cases, it, it isn't justified and we don't need to have the death penalty. Certainly here in the United States, I don't think there's a need for the death penalty at all. Um, certainly, though, I can respect that there is um, 
a, a widespread divergence of opinions on that. And that's where the dialogue, I think, needs to come into play. We do need a dialogue about um, topics such as the death penalty and things that don't have a clear answer in Revelation, things that don't um, necessarily have a clear answer. And we don't have a clear answer. I was just talking today with my freshman. We were going through Exodus, and M Moses comes down from the mountain, and they've made this golden calf. And so, like, obviously, God's like, I should smite them all. And Moses says, <laughs> no, nah, you probably shouldn't. Please don't do that. The Egyptians will think bad of you. You shouldn't do that. And God's like, you're right. I've changed my mind. He's not actually changing his mind, but that's what it says. God changed his mind. But then what he tells Moses to do is to call all the people together who still will follow you. So Moses calls them all, and the Levites answer the call. He says, okay, take your swords and strike them all down. And 3,000 people were struck down that day. 3,000 people they struck down, and they didn't just go randomly striking down people. They struck down the people who were, they were fomenting rebellion against God. They were the ones that were in the trenches and really um, spreading this dissent against God. And they had their chance to repent when they said, when Moses said, hey, anyone who's going to follow me in God, come to me now. And they didn't. They chose not to. They chose to continue in their rebellion, and they strike them down. So there certainly is legitimate divergence of opinion on this, and we certainly, this is a topic worthy enough of discussion, and I wish we would have spent more time doing it. I think we will spend more time in the coming years really talking about this as, as a church, and this is something I think we will start to really push against. Yeah, and I definitely think this is a good candidate for a future episode. I think so, too. Yeah. All right, and with that, um, that's the end of the episode. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Thanks.